Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is a reading from Ezra, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, and Haggai, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together, supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And now from Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. So I was reflecting when Brent was doing a baptism I think I've missed or almost missed that congregational vow about like a half dozen times, but every single time Brent's like, vow, vow, vow. 
and I realized Brent didn't have his own Brent Stutzman, and that was the issue here. So, but then he did himself realize it, so it all worked out great. So, well, hey, this is uh, a passage probably a few of us are super familiar with, and I'm looking forward to looking at it together with you. And before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we uh, pause again together uh, to remember that we're not alone. Um, the songs that we have sung are not just about you. We are singing in your presence. We are rejoicing in you being with us and for us. And the word we have just read is not only words of men. It is you speaking to us. And so as your people, we ask again, that your spirit would open our ears and open our hearts, that you would shape us and renew us to make us more your people who love you more deeply and trust you more fully, that we might be more like Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you are like me in finding Greek mythology fascinating. I think maybe the Percy Jackson series, if you're familiar with it, our kids were really into it. It's kind of gotten me back into Greek myths a bit. And, and one of the things that I find most interesting about Greek mythology, at least most memorable, is the many different ways that those who somehow wrong the gods get punished. I mean, this is definitely where some of the most grotesque deeds, I mean, perhaps you're familiar with some of them. So there's the sad story of Prometheus, who's chained to a boulder for all eternity and birds peck at his liver and then every night the liver gets resized again so it can happen the next day. That's kind of gruesome. And then you've got um, Arachne. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with her story. She's so beautiful, the gods don't like that, so she gets changed into a spider after she's killed. Um, there's Tantalus, from which we get the word being tantalizing, who for all eternity is right next to this beautiful fruit tree and this water, but every time he's hungry or thirsty and he gets close to them, they kind of flee away so he can never quite get them. They're very creative. Um, perhaps the one, though, that I am most... I think our culture is most aware of is the one of Sisyphus. Perhaps you're familiar with this one. The story of this man who for all eternity has to push up a boulder all the way up to a mountain and once he gets to the very top he's almost there and then the rock comes tumbling back down and he has to do it again and again and again forever. I think our culture probably knows that one best because we resonate with it the most. Because that's how work feels, right? That we just like day after day, we do the same work, we try to get it done, and then up, oh, it's back again, and it's back again. And it just feels like we're bringing the rock up, bringing it back down. Well, there's these encouraging words we have in 1 Corinthians when Paul is talking about the resurrection. He says, because of this, because Jesus is risen from the dead, because you can count on resurrection, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, as we are seeking, as those who are redeemed by Jesus, to give all of our lives and every aspect to Christ and to serve him, we can know that it is not a Sisyphean task, that the work that we are doing is fruitful. But if we're honest, it often doesn't feel that way, right? So we try with our jobs to to honor Christ in the way we do it, to show integrity, to show respect to others. But sometimes we wonder, how much of a difference am I actually making? How much are people actually seeing what I'm trying to do? 
or in our relationships, in our marriages. We know we are called to seek to grow, and so we go into counseling with our spouse as we're struggling, and week after week, and we wonder, are we really getting anywhere? Well, we know we're called to, to seek the good of our neighbor. We're praying for people we know who don't know Christ. We're seeking to develop relationships, but we're not sure we're ever making any progress. It just sometimes feels like work and work, and it's just ordinary, and there's not gratification, and it doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere. Now, this isn't the first time that God's people have experienced that kind of situation. It's something we feel very much in the period of rebuilding. That's, that's where we're at in, as we're kind of working from the beginning of the Bible to Jesus. We're near the very end of the Old Testament and we're in the period of rebuilding. You might remember last week that as, as God's people experience a kind of death, as they are in exile, God proclaims hope, that there is going to be life beyond this death, hope beyond this hopelessness. And, and that's what happens a few decades after they're exiled, God brings them back. But yet, as he brings them back, there is this bittersweetness. There's almost this sense of anti-climax because it just feels so ordinary. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just kind of contrast one of the contrasts here. The, the return from Babylon back to Israel is described in a lot of places in the Bible as a second exodus. And perhaps you remember the story of the exodus. It's, you know, got a lot of fireworks, right? I mean, you know, God with these ten plagues, and you've got darkness, and you've got blood, and you've got bugs, and then brought through the Red Sea, and then as they're traveling, they're getting food every morning of manna, there's miracles everywhere, and boom, they enter the promised land, and walls fall down. I mean, this is a mega million dollar movie. I was going to say it's waiting to be made, but of course it has been made multiple times. It's exciting. Now, have you noticed there's never the sequel Exodus part two. Because what would have to be the subtitle is this time, there are fewer people, less things happen, and it's frankly less interesting. Because that's what the second ex Exodus is. When they come back from Babylon, instead of hundreds of thousands, it's just tens of thousands. And there's not some mighty freeing from this bad guy, it's just the king saying, okay, you can go. And, and so they do, and, and they're still under the king of Persia. And even the traveling is not as exciting. They come in kind of bits and pieces and dribs and drabs. And one of the more dramatic moments in Ezra is Ezra and his band of people, as they're traveling back, are afraid they're going to get overtaken by bandits. And they don't. And that's great. But that's, that's not Exodus material. It feels just mundane. And so when they get to the land, having experienced this second Exodus, then they're told to get to work. And they do. The first thing they do is, is and this is what's recorded in the, pre, uh, the earliest, uh, earlier part of Ezra 3, is they build the altar, the altar that was once in front of the temple. And this is important. It's like planting a flag. God's worship is not dead. And then they start building the temple again. And here we see this contrast again, because... Just kind of giving you a quick flashback, if you don't remember, when Solomon was building his temple, it was awesome. I mean, you had the best 
wood shipped from Lebanon. You had gold everywhere. It was massive. It was ornate. It was beautiful. And climactically, the very glory of God floods the temple. And everyone celebrates, and there's sacrifices, and there's everything. Well, here, it's not like that. They don't have a whole lot of money. They don't have a whole lot of workers. It is, it is painstaking work. And as what will happen is if we were to continue down this path, as we'll see that when, it ever, when eventually it's built, it's not even the glory of God comes flooding in. It's, it's really ordinary and, and really mundane. Now, there's two ways to be viewing what's going on. On one hand, what we see here is this clear testimony to the faithfulness of God. God said, I am not done with you. I will bring you back. And he has done exactly that. He has protected his people. He has brought them home. And now he is enabling them to do this work of rebuilding the temple. There is something here about the faithfulness of God that can be celebrated and we see that's, that's how some people view this. If you were paying attention to our passage, it says Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are kind of like the governor and the main priest, they're the leaders. And then all these other people who came with him, it says they made a beginning. And that's exciting. They, they got to work. It talks a lot about work, about how the Levites were working. They made a beginning, and they dug out, and they made a foundation. So we don't yet even have the building, but they have the foundation for the temple. And do you know what they do after they've made the foundation? They have a party. There is shouting. There is singing. There is dancing. There's cymbals. There are trumpets. This is a major celebration. And what are they singing? Well, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever towards Israel. God isn't done with us. We are still alive. This is something to celebrate. That is one way of viewing this, and it's a right way. But perhaps you notice there's another way that's being viewed at the very same time. Because this is not like the former days. And so you have a group of people who, who were there when there was the temple, who saw the beauty of it. And they look at the foundations and they know where this is going. And they weep. Because it's not going to be like that temple. It's going to be ordinary. It's going to be ugly and small and feeble by comparison. And you have this... this wonderfully recorded moment of ambiguity here in this celebration did you notice this where it says in verse 12 that old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation though many also shouted out loud for joy so that the people couldn't even figure out whether it was the sound of joyful shout or the sound of people's weeping. It was just so intermingled. There's this ambiguity where both things are happening at the same time. And that's, that's what characterizes this rebuilding age. There is work to be done. God has been faithful. They are called. And there is an obedience that is good. And yet there is a sense of, are we really doing anything that's that extraordinary? Are we doing anything worthwhile? Or are we just kind of spinning our wheels? Because... We know what it used to look like, and we know what glory should be, and this isn't it. And again, I wonder if we identify with that feeling. We have seen personally 
God's faithfulness in our lives, and we've seen God's hand. And as a church, we have seen the way that God has provided and for and protected us. And so we know that our response is to be working faithfully, and so we do, and so we try. But if we're honest, isn't it the case that our work sometimes just feels ordinary and mundane, and we don't know if our effort is really getting anywhere? Well, that's the ambiguity that you have in these verses. There is joy, but then there's weeping, and it's not clear which is which. And so what happens if we kind of continued beyond just this moment is we have them kind of just giving up. Because it's going to be a messy process, and it is a messy process. There's fundraising that needs to happen. You have all these political battles and red tape. You have people around the area who really don't want to see this temple built. And so all of this resistance makes people go, is this even worth it? Because we know that the final product isn't really going to be that great anyway. And so for about 10 years, they just give up. They stop making the temple. The feeling is, you know what? We have so much to take care of with our own homes and our own families Let's just focus on that rather than investing on something that's not going to be worth our time. Perhaps we can even identify with that too. So God sends Haggai. Haggai is a prophet. He's sent right in this time, and that was the second reading that we had. Before our reading, Haggai first tells God's people, this this isn't right. I am God. And before you're focusing on your own needs, you should be focusing on me, the one that you worship. You need to get back to work. But then in chapter 2, we see God addressing specifically what is, what is stopping his people, what is holding them back. Perhaps you notice this. Verses 2 and 3. Speak now to Zerubbabel. Remember, he's the governor and Joshua is the priest. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He understands exactly where they're coming from. He knows that what's stopping them right now is as they're looking at the foundation and as they're imagining where it's going, this is nothing in their eyes. And maybe maybe that's a phrase that we know. Is this not what we're doing? Nothing in our eyes. So then God responds to that feeling, and he gives really three instructions. But as we'll see, all of those instructions are going to be focusing in the same direction. And the three instructions are be strong, get to work, and don't be afraid. So first he says, be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, people. Now that word strong here is not just physical strength. This is not just a command to pump some iron or something like that. This is, strong means courage. Or maybe a more contemporary way of describing it is strong means grit. That that word grit, if you are in education circles, you'll know it's kind of a buzzword right now because it's seen as having a lot to do with predictive of success for someone who's studying. And grit is just the idea of passion for a goal combined with perseverance to last in it. It's the idea of sticking at something that's too hard to do immediately, sticking, sticking at even when you don't feel like you're always making progress, sticking at it when you're even meeting failure. It's just a stubbornness to get something done. That's grit. 
And that's what God is saying. He's calling his people, be gritty. Keep at it. That's why this next instruction is just kind of flowing out from the first one. Be strong and work. Keep your head down. Don't be dismayed. Don't be worried about what looks like failure. Just keep going. And then the third instruction really is saying the same thing, except that one is getting to the heart of what stands in the way. Do not be afraid. Now, how does that fit? Well, let me ask you this. Why is it sometimes that we do procrastinate when we are faced with a task? Why is it sometimes that we eventually are even tempted to give up on something? What do you think? Let me tell you, it's not just because something is hard. Each of us do certain hard things without any level of procrastination. Some of us have a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, and we will work, and we will work until it's done. Or some of us might be making a piece of furniture, and it's elaborate, but there's never a sense of procrastination. Or some of us spend hours upon hours trying to remove the slice from our golf drive. Are those hard things? They absolutely are, especially for me, the last of those three. But do we procrastinate about them? No. My point is it's not just because something is difficult. Why do we procrastinate? What stands in the way of grit? And the answer is fear. We don't keep at something because we are afraid we're not going to do it right. We're afraid we're not good enough. We're afraid that even if we work our tail off at, at the ends, we will have failed. Or at best, it will just feel ordinary and not worth it. Now that's exactly what's going on with the people of Israel, right? They, they are afraid. They're afraid because there's these enemies. They're afraid because the work's hard. But they're afraid that also that everything is going to end up being just a lot of ordinary and so why even try? I mean, getting back to us when we're called to seek the kingdom of God, isn't that so often what stands in the way for us? Sometimes I've seen couples who stop working just because they are hopeless, because they're afraid that no matter how much they work, no matter how much counseling they do, it's never going to get any better. That's fear. Or we stop seeking to reach out to our neighbor. We stop praying for them. We stop seeking to invite them into our homes and telling them about Jesus because we just don't think we're going to get anywhere. That's fear. That's fear of failure. And so God understands this. And he addresses his people right where that fear is. Notice how he does this. Verse 4, be strong and work. And why? Because I am with you. Verse 5, when it says, do not be afraid, what's the reason that he gives right before that? Because my spirit is with you. When you are doing the work that I call you to, God says, it is going to appear ordinary. You might think that you're failing. You might not see the fruitfulness. But if you are obeying me, you know I am with you and I will do things in and through you that you cannot possibly imagine. That's his point here. 
And let me tell you, if we continue the story of Ezra, we'll see that this is exactly what happens. It is, uh, uh, by human standards, an inglorious set of events. It is hard to build the temple, then it's hard to build the wall. And at times it looks really feeble, so they have to be holding like a sword in one hand while they've got like this trial in the other. It's not impressive. But yet you have this wonderful phrase again and again being repeated, but the hand of the Lord was upon me. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And they see success. Because God is with them, even as they fear failure. You know, it's interesting that, that to me that Paul says something really similar in Philippians to us. He says, work out your salvation. And by that, we get confused by that language. But it's basically saying, God has saved you. He has made you his own. And now as one who is saved, you are called to new calling. Work it out. You are called to seek his kingdom. You're called to live it out. Work this out. This is your calling. Why? Because God is at work in you and he will do it. That's essentially what it says. We don't need to be afraid of failing as we seek his kingdom, as we seek to obey our calling, because we are not alone in this. Because God is at work making things fruitful in ways that we cannot possibly imagine. I remember when I was a kid, probably I think it was in seventh grade, our church had morning and evening service, which I hated. But I remember an evening service that I was probably tuning out most of the sermon, but at one moment I just heard the pastor who was near retirement saying something like, you know, I have never seen it possible for someone to grow as a Christian unless they're regularly spending time in God's word. That phrase changed my life. I mean, I remember it and it just like suddenly, oh, oh, that's what I need to do. Now, I only say that because I am confident that person had no idea. He probably thought all of the kids were completely tuned out. He had no idea what fruitfulness, but God was with him and gave fruitfulness to the work in ways that he will never know. You know, there are ways that you and I, as we're seeking to be faithful, will never understand what God does through what we're doing. We'll never see how he answers our prayers. We'll never see how things that we do in our work are seen by others and points people to Christ. We'll never know how just giving someone a Bible or saying something ends up bearing this fruit far beyond what we can imagine. But what we do know is that as we are seeking to be faithful, God is at work because he is with us. And so we don't need to be afraid. Now, God doesn't just stop there. He, he says something beyond to address the fears. Verse 6, after he says, fear not, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that all the treasures of the nations will come in, and I will fill this house with glory. Now, this isn't the last time he speaks about this. If we continued on later on in the same chapter, Haggai has God, you know, Haggai declares these things of what God says. God says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. There's that language again. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms. The shaking imagery is the imagery, of course, of an earthquake. And God is saying, there is a day in the future where there will be great upheaval. And everything is going to be turned upside down. 
And all of the things right now that look great and glorious and extraordinary, the kings and the armies, will crumble and be shown to be nothing. And meanwhile, this, this temple that you're making that seems so ordinary and insignificant will be filled with glory. Now, the people hearing this promise is, could only get this promise. They, they did not see what God was saying would happen. In fact, all of Ezra and Nehemiah is just pointing forward, and Haggai is just pointing forward, and Zechariah is just pointing forward to this time of this great shaking, this great upheaval. None of the people working on the temple knew that what they were doing is preparing, preparing a city, preparing a people, preparing a home so that four centuries later, the great king that everyone is waiting for would come into this temple first as a child and then as an adult. And when he did, everything was turned upside down. I mean, literally, Jesus comes into the temple and he turns the tables upside down. And then a week later, when he goes to the cross, everything is turned upside down. Because at the cross, things are exposed. The hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the corruption of those in power, the sinfulness of humanity is all shown for anyone who can see in that moment. And it says at the very end, when Jesus dies, do you know what happens? The earth shakes. And the centurion because he has eyes to see, sees glory, says, surely this one is the Son of God. See, at the cross, all that was once viewed as glorious is shown to be empty. And the things that to human eyes seem ordinary and weak and even shameful are shown to be the very power and the glory of God. And so God says to you, and God says to me, the work that you are doing is not in vain. There are things that we are doing that seem so insignificant that on the last day when we see through the eyes of the cross, when Christ is returned, we will realize that those things that seemed least to us were most glorious because God is doing far more than we can possibly imagine. And so he says to you, and he says to me, be strong, get to work, and do not be afraid, for my gracious hand is upon you, and I am with you. We have a chance right now to spend some time kind of talking with God. Probably some of us have feel, felt worn down and more inclined to just worry about our own business than to figure out what it means to seek God's kingdom. I'd like you to spend this time with me to just be quietly before God confessing and acknowledging where our heart hasn't been right and turning again towards this calling he has to work for his glory. And then I'll lead us in a time of confession at the end. So would you please join with me in a time of silent confession?
Father, I think of how um, in your word you compare the life of following you to a great race that involves just keeping going day in after day out. And Lord, you know how sometimes we grow weary and we are tempted to stop running and it's easy for us to lose focus. And really what the issue is, is the lack of faith. We, we acknowledge before you that we often don't trust that the work that we do in obedience to you is of worth. Father, forgive us for where we focus more on our own needs and our own priorities and we turn our focus away from you. And we pray, Lord, not only that you would forgive us, and we know that you are forgiving, but that you would strengthen our faith. You would give us the confidence that you are with us and working in and through us. Help us, Lord, to be those who work faithfully, that you might do glorious things through the ordinary things that we are called to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel from Jeremiah. God says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Friends, hear the good news. Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose coming we announce in this season is our righteousness. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.